Welcome to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored as always by The Nation magazine and widely available on all podcast platforms. This week we're doing something a little bit different. One of my favorite podcasts is called Know Your Enemy. Um, it's a weekly podcast uh, where Sam Adler-Bell and Matt Sitman um, investigate the American right. Um, and they do this with um, great intellectual curiosity um, and scholarly knowledge um, and really connect the dots of history to the present. I was uh, recently uh, honored to be a guest on their uh, podcast. Um, we're talking about um, Gary Wills, uh, the distinguished historian um, who had started off as a conservative, uh, had uh, been part of the National Review Circuit, um, but then went through a, a radicalization in the 1960s um, and became a, a very um, strong sort of social critic um, of mainstream American politics um, and the author of many books um, uh, on American history, uh, you know, going from the time of uh, Washington and Jefferson um, uh, to the present. Uh, uh, he's, uh, one of his, uh, best books is called The Kennedy Imprisonment from 1981. Um, uh, and it's a book that is still very relevant now, not just as about the Kennedys, but the lasting changes that the Kennedys brought to American society, which we still see playing out now, um, in terms of, uh, the bringing of celebrity to politics, um, and uh, uh, the sort of outsider insurgent narratives in politics and the sort of extolling of great leaders. Um, I had a great time talking um, with um, uh, Matt and Sam about all this, about Gary Wills, about American Catholicism, uh, National Review, the Kennedys. Um, it's a very rich conversation. So... Um, this will be the body of our podcast. Uh, it's a long discussion, but it's the Thanksgiving uh, weekend. And uh, um, if you have time, uh, please uh, give it a listen, uh, because um, I think it will uh, greatly change your understanding of American politics. All right, listeners, welcome to episode 82 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here, as always, with my great friend, Sam Adler-Bell. And Sam, I saw you a lot this week. No, I'm I'm still glowing from Wednesday night at King's Theater in Brooklyn, where we saw the man himself, one Robert Zimmerman. <laughs> yes, and he was on. He was so good. It was really incredible. It was a second night at that venue, which I think helped. And uh, it was a little yeah. uh, Know Your Enemy double date night, our significant others. Yeah, exactly. Four of us eating pasta beforehand at Shea Gold, Shea Adler Bell, and then uh, a trip to the King's Theater where Bob rocked our worlds. Yeah, it was so good. I was really glad that he was so good because I had done such a hard push for late era Bob Dylan on the bonus episode we did recently. So if there was any listeners who were convinced to go because of of my proselytizing, I'm glad that they were not disappointed because he was fabulous. Yes. And uh, it was in Brooklyn at the King's Theater. So that meant if that place had been bombed, like half the lefty podcasters in New York City would have been taken with it. <laughs> we bumped into Evan from Jokerman, Dave Cleon, a bunch of other people. Yeah, serious podcast crowd. <laughs> All right, Matt. Well, let's get to the meat of the episode here. What are we talking about? I was so excited for this episode. As I say at the start of the episode, get ready to be Will's pilled yet again. Mm -hmm. This time we took up 
Wills's really incredible, one of my favorite books of his, published in 1982, The Kennedy Imprisonment, A Meditation on Power. We're talking Kennedys, the Kennedy myth, the puncturing of the Kennedy myth by Gary Wills. And it's appropriate because just in five days from now, November 22nd, will be the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination by the CIA. <laughs> That's right. By Ted Cruz's father. Um, <laughs> so, yes, the anniversary is coming up. And, of course, a Kennedy has been in the news lately. RFK Jr. is running for president, polling surprisingly well in, in mm-hmm. some polls we see. So there's going to be a lot of Kennedy coverage in the next few weeks. And it's going to drive me crazy because, well, we're not going to spoil it for you. But clearly, not enough people have read Gary Wills' book on the Kennedys, because once you read it, you'll never look at them the same way. Exactly. Yeah. We're preemptively inoculating listeners against the wave of Kennedy hagiography and nostalgia that we're about to go through. Yes. And it pains me because as our first Catholic president, I wish I could love him a little more, but (laughs) anyway. And we had a perfect guest for this episode, Jeet here finally made it on Know Your Enemy. Jeet is the national affairs correspondent for the nation, but more importantly, really, for these matters, he's totally obsessed with the history of American conservatism. Big fan of Gary Wills. We get a lot more from Jeet about Gary Wills' whole corpus in the beginning of the episode, and it was just so fun to geek out with him about this book. Yeah, Jeet was a great guest. Sam, as you're saying, he's just as Wills-pilled as we are. And it's great to finally have him on. And as Sam mentioned, we do at the start of it kind of talk about how really all three of us got into Gary Wills and, you know, Jeet offers some really fascinating kind of context. He brings up Hugh Kenner, National Review, that whole set. And it's a really interesting window into how Jeet, who is Canadian, got into American politics, especially conservatism and Gary Wills. So, you know, it takes us a little bit to get into the meat of the episode, but I would not have it any other way because it was really fascinating stuff. Should we do housekeeping? Yes. Now for some housekeeping items. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent who sponsor the podcast. One thing they do for us is if you subscribe to Know Your Enemy on Patreon at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy for $10 a month, they give you a free digital subscription. So please consider doing that. Makes a great holiday gift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We're approaching that that season. And for $5 a month, of course, if you subscribe to Know Your Enemy on Patreon, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, which we've had some good ones lately, including we did a second round of taking mailbag questions from listeners, and that's our latest bonus episode, and had a lot of fun doing it. So please consider subscribing. And as always, we want to thank our intrepid producer, Jesse Brenneman, who, as usual, was given, you know several hours of mad chat from the three of us and shaped it into the wonderful episode you're about to hear. And also, we want to thank Will Epstein, who does the music for the podcast. And I just had lunch with the Sweetie Pie. We love Will. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, should we get to it, Sam? Yeah. All right. Here's our episode on Gary Wills' 1982 book, The Kennedy Imprisonment, with Jeet here. Enjoy. Right, listeners, let's get started. Finally, 82 episodes in, we found the perfect occasion to welcome a guest onto the show who has been someone who's been such an incredible encouragement to me and Sam, a true friend of the pod, a writer and thinker who's been so generous, not only with his praise of the podcast, but in comparing notes, sharing references, sending links, 
lots of great little tidbits and DMs and emails. So thank you very much, Jeet, here, and welcome to Know Your Enemy. It's been a long time coming, and we're so happy to have you. Long time listener, first time caller, as they say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, it has been a long time. And I, I got to tell you, like, I've been interested in this stuff for a long time. And, you know, back in the 80s, if you were in the library reading George Nash, as I was, you were a nerd. You were not one of the popular kids. As opposed to now? Yeah, I was going to say, Jeet, I don't think that's really changed. <laughs> well, at the very least, we didn't have podcasts and we didn't have the uh, parasocial relationships. The nerds couldn't find each other. That's right. That, it, was, it was a much lonelier path when I uh, first started on this journey. Well, I'm glad that we found each other and I'm so happy you're here, Jeet. And listeners, you'll know that we're so excited to have Jeet on, not just because it's Jeet and we finally get a chance to talk with him, but... We are going to be totally Will's pilled for the next hour and a half. <laughs> we're back on our bullshit talking about Gary Wills. And this book in particular, we're talking about Gary Wills' 1982 book, The Kennedy Imprisonment, A Meditation on Power. And this book, I feel like it's not as discussed as much as, say, Nixon Agonistas or even something like Lincoln at Gettysburg, some of Gary Wills' work on the American founding and American political history. But, you know, we wanted to talk about this book in the context of Wills' career and the way it fits into the Know Your Enemy universe, if I can put it that way, the broader Know Your Enemy cinematic universe, and also kind of like the context of our own encounters with it? Yes, yes, definitely. So before we say too much more about the book substantively, Jeet, I'd be interested in this book, again, published in 1982. You already established you were reading George Nash in some Canadian library in the early 1980s when this book came out. When did you uh, first kind of start reading Gary Wills? And uh, when did you first encounter this book in particular? So I first encountered Gary Wells through William F. Buckley Jr. I, I had a phase when I was a late teen of you know reading some Buckley books, and there were a couple of points that were of interest. Um, one is that it's in one of his essay collections, The Governor Lisseth. A terrible title for a book, by the way, <laughs> where Buckley has, as he sometimes does in his books, these exchanges of letters. So he had a long exchange with the literary critic Hugh Kenner. He's got to fill up the pages somehow. So he puts his correspondence <laughs> yeah. in there. In this case, it worked out well because the Kenner stuff was very interesting and it got me interested in Kenner. So Kenner upbraids both Gary Wells and Buckley for some literary uh, faults that they have, some bad metaphors and some very loose syntax. And I think that's the first time I encountered Gary Wills' name, and then I read another Buckley book, Cruising Speed, where uh, Buckley is very mad at Gary Wills and sort of compares him to Ravello Oliver, who was like this neo-Nazi uh, that had been Buckley's friend and gone crazy and said, you know, like, Wills and uh, Oliver are both examples of how people can, you know, become unhinged. And then there's a third book called Did You Ever See a Dream Walking, which is a collection of essays on American conservatism. And I, I at the time, I thought the two strongest pieces in the book were by Gary Wells and Hugh Kenner. Kenner is sort of a defense of literary modernism against political critiques. And then Wills' great essay, The Convenient State. And so for me, these three writers, Buckley, Kenner, and Wills, were kind of tied together. Just for listeners, Hugh Kenner, can you just say a little more about him? So Hugh Kenner was one of the great literary critics of the 20th century. Like, he's a huge figure in the history of modernism, particularly for his writing on Ezra Pound. His great work is The Pound Era, but he also wrote a lot right, on right. Uh, James Joyce, on Eliot, on Beckett. Uh, he's a beautiful writer. 
And part of what Kenner is trying to do is to situate modernist literature as a recuperation of tradition in an age of technology. Like he sort of studies how the typewriter influenced the poetry of Pound or William Carlos Williams, that these were the first poets to use typewriters, basically suggesting that technology didn't destroy tradition. It enabled poets to recover tradition in new ways. So he's very interested in how Pound did translations of like Homer and many other writers, Confucius, right? And and to show that his great achievement was modernizing translation, to do translations in a modern lingual that, you know, gave a new life to these ancient writers. And to say that tradition and modernity are not necessarily enemies, that there is a path forward where tradition can thrive in the condition of modernity. It's like, in some ways, Hugh Kenner's project in like sort of the back of the book of National Review was to reconcile conservatism with modernism, just as like the partisan review set, like in Philip Rav and those folks were reconciling Marxism with modernism. <laughs> oh, no, exactly, exactly. I mean, the partisan review was very anti-Kenner because they saw him as the great rival. But there's a little bit of a narcissism of small differences there because the projects have such a resonance with each other. Totally, because the traditional anti-communist claim is that Marxism is a form of religion, whereas I also think religion is a form of Marxism. <laughs> you know? Finally, some dialectical thinking on this podcast. Yeah. So, 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 so <laughs> Kenner was engaged in, I think, a very important sort of project. His great mentor was Marshall McLuhan, and he was very interested in technology. He was like making computers in his home in the 70s, and he actually wrote a guide to like using computers for Buckley. And he actually designed a navigational guide, an early version of GPS, for Buckley to go yachting so that Buckley doesn't get lost wow. in the ocean. So, so Kenner's a very interesting sort of polymathic figure who's like, you know, very interested in math and technology and very interested in like modernist literature and trying to show that the two of them come together. So Wills, Kenner, and Buckley, great friends. And then the 60s happened. And, and Wills, who had started off as a National Review conservative, you know, is increasingly taking seriously the civil rights movement and the new left and the critique of America. And he becomes a sort of, you know, apostate. And this is a great sort of source of hurt and injury for Buckley because he had sort of seen Wills as a, you know, like a second son. And in some ways, Wills was the great hope of National Review. You know, he had everything that Buckley wanted. He actually, you know, Buckley could give the Latin tag, but Wills actually knew Latin, right? Buckley had the piety, but Wills had been a seminarian and he knew his theology backwards and forwards. And he was a great writer. And the fact that this very promising young man broke with National Review, broke with conservatism, hurt for Buckley. And there's a story in the John Judas biography of Buckley where like Kenner uh, had... Uh, Buckley and Wills over for dinner and he says, you know, Wills was constantly baiting Buckley and Buckley was trying to laugh it off and it made it for a very uncomfortable evening all around. Kenner described it as a sort of Oedipal drama playing out on the dinner table. And, and fast forward, like the National Review was obsessed with Gary Wills to the point where, you know, they had an editorial called The Wills Watch. I find this so fascinating. It's really like, talk about a wounded attachment. Like they can't quit him. Buckley in particular is so pained by his apostasy that they become completely obsessed with him. Yeah, I just want to quote that that editorial, The Wills Watch. Our foremost prodigal son, Gary Wills, continues his riotous living 
on the left. It's like somebody who's like obsessed with their ex-boyfriend and constantly checking their Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I, I did do the check of this because I have National Review digitally from 1975 onwards. From 1975 to the present, the National Review has had nearly 200 separate articles that have mentioned Gary Wills. Oh, my goodness. That's like astonishing. They are stalking this poor man. That is all I, I had not known. I mean, I knew of the wounded attachment, Buckley's woundedness in particular at Wills's apostasy. And I knew some of that obsession, but I did not know it went that deep. But that might be a good occasion to kind of talk about Wills specifically a little more. Listeners will already glean that this book as a product of Gary Wills's mind and work clearly fits into the Know Your Enemy universe in ways we don't have to belabor. Um, we're already getting to some of that. But, you know, I wanted to kind of mention that this book in particular, The Kennedy Imprisonment, again, it was published in 1982. This was the first book I read at the start of the pandemic. Like, you know, the kind of shelter in place, especially in New York. We were all stuck at home. The Sitman imprisonment. Yes, yes. We were all imprisoned. And I had had a sort of because I was an editor at Commonweal for over six years, I had kind of inherited, if not a, exactly a suspicion of Will's, a kind of lukewarmness toward him. I had read and admired something like Lincoln at Gettysburg. But this book, The Power of Will's Mind, when Sam and I were talking on the phone the other night about it, it is just, you know, you're in the presence of a mind more powerful than yours. And that Catholic nature of his thinking, the synthetic way he brings things together and the kind of structure and organization and just kind of logical unfolding of this book is remarkable. And so I read this and was blown away. And in short order, that started my current Will's obsession. And, you know, I, I wanted to say, too, I'm interested in what both of you kind of think of this. Again, published in 1982, I kind of think part of the reason this book stands out to me, even if it's not Wills' most famous, is that it's hard to say what is the heart of his career because he's been so productive for so long. But I do feel like the kind of Wills at the height of his powers is the 20-year stretch from Nixon Agonistas in 1970, Bear Rune Choirs, his book on kind of radical religion, Vatican II, we're going to talk about that some, in 1972, through, say, Lincoln at Gettysburg in 1992, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. And this book is right in the middle of that 20-year period. And when he published this, he was 48. And kind of just, again, height of his powers comes to mind. We were talking last night about the word control. Like, he's in control in every sentence of this book. Every word. <laughs> and we can talk a little bit more about the context for this in terms of, like, wills and Catholicism. You know, recall the great phrase from Beru inquires the reign of the two Johns. Pope John the Twenty Third, who called the Second Vatican Council in the early sixties, and then Kennedy, the first Catholic president in 1960, right? So the two Johns, the reign of the two Johns. I, I don't think the Kennedy book really can be understood apart from Wills's long meditation on Catholicism, and in particular, working through tradition and modernity, right? Catholicism and liberal democracy, can they be reconciled? I ended up doing my um, MA in history at York University on Hugh Kenner, Marshall McLuhan, and Father Walter Ong as sort of Catholic theorists of media and modernism. 
Zionism. And the sort of conclusion I came to was that they came of age intellectually in the time of Vatican II and were navigating between modern democracy and mass culture and Catholic traditionalism and trying to figure out ways in which Catholic culture can survive and even thrive even as it makes peace with the modern world. Yes, that was kind of this new moment. As Pope John XXIII said, the Second Vatican Council threw open the windows of the church so the church could look out to the world and the world could look in. So a lot of the moment that Wills captures in the Kennedy book, especially around religion, it's at this very pregnant moment in both American history, but also the history of the church, the modern church especially. And we're going to talk about all that, but in terms of situating this in Wills's broader project, the kind of trajectory of his work, Sam, I wondered in particular what you made of this book in Wills's career before we get into more of the substance of the book. I, I mean, I, I feel like for the listeners who enjoyed the Nixon Agonistas episode, I think we're going to be doing something similar here because as Will says in the beginning of that book, he says, you know, this is a book about Nixon, but it's also a book about the affair of the relationship between America and Nixon and what we can learn about America from how it encountered Nixon and what we can learn about Nixon from how he encountered America. And this is the same methodology, but with the Kennedy dynasty. And it, it works so well. Like one thing I was thinking while I was reading this book is that like to the extent that the Kennedys are created as like our royalty, it does feel to me like we, we can learn so much about American myth and sort of its authorizing myths by looking at the Kennedys. And, you know, what we permit in the Kennedys, <laughs> what we admire about them, can tell us so much about what is wrong with America, too. And that, like, there's <laughs> obviously something sort of libidinally satisfying about transgressing against our, like, practically ecclesiastical demand that we admire the Kennedys, <laughs> but also that like it helps us understand the vulgarity of America's authorizing myths to look squarely at the Kennedys because frankly, these people are awful. They're disgusting, fraudulent people. Like they're unapologetic seekers of wealth and power who exploit others in the path to their own aims at every single moment. And of course, Wills is too good of a writer and too sensitive a, a psychologist to only write a kind of takedown. You know, he, he understands the pathos of these characters too deeply. But I do feel like approaching the Kennedys with a reverence feels like a kind of democratic responsibility in the way that in a way that like republicanism small r republicanism should be a democratic responsibility in the UK and the commonwealth <laughs> like to resist the the sort of myths we're forced to imbibe about the kennedys is is somehow to learn everything we need to know about america sam i'm so glad you brought up the notion of myth because i i was thinking in wills's i mentioned the reign of the two johns his great phrase from Bear Room Choirs, published in 1972. And I was thinking, you know, like Wills as a myth puncturer. Like in that earlier book, the kind of the myth of pre-Vatican II, fortress Catholicism, right? He shows it was actually much more rickety a structure than the mythologizers want us to believe. And this book is definitely a, a, a pretty devastating puncturing of the Kennedy myth. You know, all the things we associate, right? The Pulitzer Prize for Profiles and Courage, the PT-109 Navy heroism of JFK. At every turn, Will shows just how much these were fabricated in many cases, if not in total, then in the details that made the Kennedys and, and Jack 
Jack in particular seem more heroic than they might have actually been. And the kind of these were the details that then stick in the public consciousness and mind. So, you know, Wills as myth puncturer, it's relevance to some of what's happening now, the, the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, uh, RFK Jr. running for president. I mean, when people say, this is such a betrayal of his family's legacy. In what sense? Exactly. I'm thinking this book shows you that the apple has not fallen that far from the tree. I mean, this is a family who, even the Carolyn Kennedy and her uh, kind of like hot son. I was about to say exact same phrase, hot son. <laughs> like reenacted Kennedy swimming in the ocean. The PT-109 rescue, his heroism. And, and as Will said, his physical courage can't be denied. But... What made that physical courage necessary, his decisions and poor judgment and, and even stupidity, that part of the story gets left out. But, you know, I, I did want to kind of, as we move towards the text of the book, just say a little more about the kind of anti-Kennedy element of the National Review crowd, because listeners might recall our previous episode on Joan Didion that we published just about two years ago. Remember, she died in December of 2021. But like Gary Will, she got her start at National Review. And in that episode on Didion, I cited a film review she wrote for National Review. It's called Wayne at the Alamo, pretty self-explanatory title. And it was published again in National Review on December 31st, 1960. And I just want to read from it here because I think it helps give a sense of the, the kind of atmosphere at National Review vis-a-vis -vis the Kennedys. I was inconsolable by the time the battle was done and Wayne lay on the cold, cold ground, bleeding as no one has bled since Janet Lee and Psycho. The last white woman walked out of the Alamo then. She had soot on her face and she was carrying her child and she held her head high as she walked past Santa Ana into the sunset. So conspicuous was my sniffling by then, meaning her crying at Wayne lying on the cold, cold ground, bleeding out, that you could scarcely hear the snickers from my neighbors, a couple of young men from Esquire, both of whom resembled Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. They don't make him like Duke on the New Frontiers. Now, of course, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. was a well-known historian and became kind of the court historian of the Kennedy administration. And the New Frontier was John F. Kennedy's phrase from his acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention in 1960 and, of course, became the kind of label or catchphrase describing the Kennedy administration's programs and policies, at both at home and abroad. And, of course, Will's in this book, he has that whole vignette comparing the Buckleys and Kennedys as Irish Catholic aristocrats, and they're trying to, you know, extirpate their identity as, quote, Irish Catholics. Talk about the sort of narcissism of small differences. I mean, <laughs> Will says the Kennedys fully made themselves semi-Irish, and the Buckleys, they were a little less aggressive on that front, and so they were only semi-semi-Irish. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I think that the way to understand this, National Review had a sense of rivalry to the Kennedys. And it's partially because of that Catholic moment, which I, I think we can't underemphasize is what made Gary Wills who he is and what made all these other figures, Buckley and Kenner, who they were, which is the moment in which Catholicism, which had been a sort of marginalized culture in America, Catholicism was the immigrant culture. It was the culture of the Irish fresh off the boat, seen by the Protestant establishment as anti-American. You know, the Pope could take over America if the Catholics get too much power. But in the 1950s, you had a Catholic moment where Catholicism reconciled itself with 
America. And it happened in two different directions. One is within Catholicism itself, where the you know Catholic Church was moving towards a position of no longer being so suspicious of democracy and saying that, you know, to be a good Catholic is to participate in democratic politics. And you could do that. And you had theorists like, um, you'll know his name, Murray. John Courtney Murray, yeah. who was one of the kind of advisors at the Second Vatican Council. Notably, he was American. He was a defender of religious liberty from within the Catholic tradition. And his famous book that brought all this together was called We Hold These Truths, Catholic Reflections on the American Proposition. And it's worth noting John F. Kennedy's famous speech in Houston, Texas, where no pope's going to tell me what to do. I believe in separation of church and state, a refutation of all the tropes and stereotypes about Catholics. That speech was sent to John Courtney Murray for notes and comments. So I'm just kind of affirming your sense of what was going on here, G. The Catholic assimilation moment. Yeah, yeah, the, the Catholic yes. assimilation. So, so, so you have the Catholic Church, like, you know, realizing that it can have a place in American democracy, but also the American establishment starting to accept Catholics as they were also starting to accept Jews as people who could participate in full whiteness and, and in full participation in America. And this was all grounded in the Cold War. Catholics were seen now as the best Americans because they were so anti-communist. Right, right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, And so this is a period where like the FBI started to hire people you know, based on the fact that they went to Catholic school. So within that Catholic moment, you had two rival attempts to introduce Catholicism into American mass politics. One was most famously Kennedy, the first Catholic president, and a sort of culmination of the longstanding ties between the Catholic voters and the Democratic Party. But the other was the National Review movement, which tried to take Catholics away from the Democratic Party and bring them into the Republican Party and make them the sort of bastion of a new conservative movement. And this is a big change in American right-wing history because this actually leads to the white ethnics joining the Republican Party, which transforms American politics. But you're also seeing the Kennedys as these dangerous rivals who are using the sort of glamour of Catholicism, the glamour of being the first Catholic president, to curtail your project. So I think from the perspective of National Review conservatism, Kennedyism is a threat. What's interesting, I think, for, with Wills is I, I do think he sort of starts from that position, which puts him outside of sort of mainstream liberalism. But as the 60s progresses, he still stays outside of mainstream liberalism, but not from the perspective of national review of conservatism, but from a kind of, you know, simpatico with the new left and the civil rights movement of seeing that sort of liberalism as inadequate to the tasks of the time. What's interesting is that you can be anti-Kennedy from a national review perspective and then later on from uh, a new left perspective. <laughs> I think especially for Wills, I mean, Jeet, everything you've been saying is so spot on. And I, I do feel like I mentioned Wills as kind of a myth buster. And I think maybe a better way of putting it is he had too much intellectual integrity and just thought too critically and sharply to accept the kind of fudging on all sides from both the Catholic side and the American side. That marriage, the, the consummation of that marriage in Kennedy, he just thought it involved too many lies or too many fudges on all sides. And uh, I think especially in like Bear Ruin Choirs, that book I've been going back to, you, you really see the kind of assumption that there was a kind of easy simpaticoness between Catholicism and American liberalism and American democracy. It was just too easy. And it, it all hinged on just kind of saying, well, the separation of church and state kind of solves this for us. He just thought it was too easy and too simple. As, as Wills quotes Murray Kempton in 1961 on JFK's election, quote, 
we have yet again been denied our first Catholic president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the thing is that, like, the form of assimilationist Catholic politics that the Kennedys represent, that's profoundly dissatisfying and, in fact, like, irksome and revolting to Wills. And you almost get the sense, you know, if you look at, say, the contemporary integralists, people like Adrian Vermeule, that style of Catholic, you can see almost the wisdom of Wills's approach because the opening given to the integralists in some ways is to say, no, 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 there is something irreconcilable about Catholicism in liberal democracy that gets fudged over too often. And they highlight those contradictions and tensions. And Wills was kind of there all along saying, it might not be this easy. And there's a lot of fuzzy-headed thinking going on. And especially that Kennedy was the apotheosis of this, right? The kind of easy way he could give that speech in, in Texas and just say, the Pope's not going to tell me what to do. I believe in separation of church and state. Well, what actually does that settle, <laughs> right? What about all the tough questions? And so I think the will's impulse to always put his thumb on the discrepancy between image and reality, between the myth-making and the actual realities of a situation, whether that was American Catholicism and liberalism, whether it was about America's myths about itself compared to the realities of our history, and in this case, whether it was the, you know, the myths about the Kennedys and their realities, the reality of their lives, that is, I think, a theme running through Wills's work. And what makes him such a special thinker, I think, is he does that in a way that's not totally disenchanting or deconstructive. Right, 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 right. It's Critical, but not cynical. This is something I was thinking about when I was finishing the book this morning, is that he's obviously fascinated by mythology and the sort of stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Hard to believe he was a classicist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is what I'm going to say, that the, and the vulgarity of those stories often, the sort of insipidness of those stories. But while believing that they are you know, often bullshit— doesn't think that they don't matter. Like, he understands so deeply how powerful these stories are. So therefore, he's doing a kind of disenchanting by pointing out the gap between reality and myth. But he's never underestimating how powerful those myths remain. And so there's a way in which you start to feel like he's a psychologist, you know, a political psychologist. He's so attuned to sort of unconscious motivation and in, in people's lives and the, the kind of uh, the wounds of the family, which, 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 you know, of course, like ignites my like Freudian antenna. But on the <laughs> other hand, on the other hand, what it really is, is Shakespearean. Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's so a theater critic sensibility, which also, of course, Freud was a Shakespearean thinker. <laughs> I mean, his greatest analogies come from Greek theater and Shakespearean theater. And the thing about thinking about politics in a Shakespearean idiom, that's how you can bring together like myth and yes. irreverence and, and pageantry all in one place. I, I think that's, that's a really great insight. And the, it is partially tied to him being a classicist, especially in the 50s and 60s. Like the whole idea of myth, myth criticism was a very big thing in the literary world. Like people like Northrop Fry. When was Joseph Campbell publishing? Like on a popular level. Well, that is also the 40s and 50s. Like, like the, that is the gestalt of the period. And I'll mention, like, you know, Wills' first job at National Review was he was hired as a theater critic for the, right. for the back of the book. Uh, he would later write a book on Shakespeare, Witches and Jesuits, Shakespeare's Macbeth. And all his books on the presidents, you know, Nixon Agonistes, uh, Kennedy Imprisonment, uh, Reagan's America, also the books on Washington and Jefferson, they are looking at these presidents not as a biographer would. I'm going to cover every fact of this 
person's life, every sandwich that they ate, but actually look at them as public figures, as sort of Shakespearean kings. What does Macbeth tell us about ourselves as humans? What does Hamlet tell us about ourselves as humans? What does Nixon tell us about ourselves as human, right? Nixon is a Shakespearean character, if ever there was a Shakespearean <laughs> character. So he is using the sort of techniques of theater criticism and exactly interested in presidential power as, you know, not just like the legal power, the, the bills that you sign, but the pageantry and the public display, which again, I think has a Catholic element. Like Catholicism is also about the pageantry and liturgy, right? Like it is the religion that is aware that we come through religions where our senses, not just by reading the you know yes. doctrine, but by, by by being in church, hearing the music, being overpowered by the cathedral. So I, I think it's natural that a Catholic would think about power in those ways. Yes. <laughs> Smells and bells. Politics has smells and bells. Hocus pocus, even. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah bare rune choirs. <laughs> Where late the sweet bird sang. Uh, so, in that sense, this project makes sense as a sort of you know, Catholicism meets democracy. But the other element that I, I think we have to include is Catholicism meets democracy in the 60s. Like the Kennedys, Nixon, but also like the civil rights movement, the anti war movement. Cesar Chavez, a huge influence on Bobby Kennedy. Exactly. And, and part of the thing that he broke from National Review was those guys were just like, you know, happy to sit in their little uh, den and read Chesterton and, you know, condemn the modern world. But, but Gary Wells, you know, even though he's a classicist, like he started to work for Esquire and, you know, he went out to the streets. He talked to the kids. He went into jail, right? Like he, he was with Martin Luther King. He saw what was happening in America. And I think this is what makes him an important writer. Like the 1960s was the great period of sort of nonfiction literary journalism, you know, what's sometimes called the new journalism. And it's, a, you know, Tom Wolfe was the great propagandist, but the great names are, you know, James Baldwin, Joan Didion, uh, Renita Adler, Norman Mailer. And what he's doing is bringing his background as a classicist, as someone versed in conservative culture, but using the techniques of journalism and a participatory journalism. He has this great anecdote with Eugene McCarthy, where, you know, like they're having dinner, Eugene McCarthy comes in with like a date, you know, sits in on their dinner, runs up a huge bill and like leaves Gary Wills and his friends to pay it. And like in normal journalism before the 1960s, like if that happened to Arthur Crock, as it did, right? Like he would not like put that in the, you would always be like, you know, you're objective and you're sober. Whereas the great journalists of the 60s, you know, they wanted to capture the craziness of America. And the great subject of all that 60s journalism is what the hell is wrong with America? Why are we falling apart? Why are we slouching towards Bethlehem, right? <laughs> you know, the second civil war, you know, Gary Wells title. Like, why are we arming for Armageddon? Like, like what is happening? And so, so, so it's this combination of that sort of Catholic worldview and the scholarly knowledge synthesized with a journalistic sensibility. Like that, that gets you a, a level of writing, which I think is like rare. And he is, for me personally, he's part of the pantheon of those writers, uh, the great new journalist, even though I, I feel like in the popular reading, like he has maybe fallen off the way Mailer has fallen off. As you were talking, I just wanted to read one thing I like to do when we talk about some of these books is just like look at who reviewed them, say, in The New York Times. And in this case, The Kennedy Imprisonment was a review in The New York Times by John Leonard. This is from the opening paragraph of that review. Quote, no wonder Gary Wills quotes so often from Norman Mailer and Murray Kempton. Like them, he's a sort of intellectual outlaw. He brings strange books by Machiavelli, Hume, Clausewitz, 
Tolstoy and Veblen to bear on the quotidian. His soul may be full of what John Cheever calls an unrequited melancholy, but his style, even as it seeks to extol American institutions, has a bandit's flair. It wears a romantic beret, end quote. <laughs> I like that. It might not be entirely right, extolling American institutions, I'm not sure quite exactly, but that intellectual outlaw, the bringing to bear of these great books, you know, all his learning on these quotidian facts, even about the Kennedys, I like that. He is a bandit's flair and wears a romantic beret. <laughs> right. And I think what's fascinating is that Wills may use the same methodology as a mailer, but the conclusions he comes to are so different. And in fact, like there's a part of what seems like the motivating impulse of this book, which is responding to Mailer's piece on JFK from 61. Uh, Superman goes to the supermarket. <laughs> right, right. But I think we sort of mentioned this too, when we talked about Wills, when we did Nixon Agonistas, which is that like, he's, he's bringing the new journalist sensibility to bear in a quite different way than some of his peers in that method. In particular, I think this is to repeat something we said in that episode, but that a lot of the new journalism was fixated on surfaces and the way people present themselves and the sort of falsity and the sort of dramaturgy of politics. And obviously, as we've been saying, Wills is focused on that too, but that's not his final say. <laughs> you know, The surface is there, and then he says, well, what else is going on here? That's why he's capable of being so much more sympathetic to the youth movements of the 60s, because he sees what's on the surface, but then asks, you know, in a much more thoughtful and sympathetic way, why is this happening? <laughs> and what do these people feel and long for? You know, their longings are interesting to him. He might, for example, move beyond seeing a slogan on a placard at a <laughs> protest and wonder what the deeper thing going on is. But Sam, speaking of deeper things, why don't we dive in? I, I really think it's a notable thing about this book that you have a prologue about the Kennedy brothers, which is brilliant. Then chapter one, sex. <laughs> <laughs> and it has an epigraph from none other than Michel Foucault. This is the epigraph to the first chapter of Wills's The Kennedy Imprisonment. Sexuality must not be described as a stubborn drive, by nature alien and of necessity disobedient to a power which exhausts itself trying to subdue it and often fails to control it entirely. It appears rather as an especially dense transfer point for relations of power between men and women, young people and old people, parents and offspring, teachers and students, priests and laity, and administration and a population. <laughs> so that's what Wills wants to say about the Kennedys in the beginning of this book, which is that sex is everywhere when we talk about the Kennedys. It begins with, of course, just Joe Kennedy is a licentious, skirt-chasing rogue, the father, and then the boys feel that they have to model their masculinity on the same impulses. Robert resists this, as Wills points out, in interesting ways, but John and Teddy do not, and this sort of sex appeal of the whole Kennedy mythos becomes extremely important for Wills throughout. I also think it's like part of the Catholicism of the book to ground sex as so important. Sex is the basis of family, and then family is the basis of politics, right? That is the structure of the book. But also like locating the Kennedys and sex 
together, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, as uh, Philip Larkin once said, you know, sexuality began in 1963, which is rather too late for me, right? But the late 50s, early 60s was the first phase of the sexual liberation movement. And it was very much a sort of masculinist phase, right? This is the era of Hefner and Playboy, of Lolita and the Olympia Press and the Grove Press, and of, of Norman Mailer himself with his book, The American Dream, which has a main character who is a friend of John Kennedy's and uh, who engages in very active buggery. So like the association of the Kennedys with sex both internally makes a lot of sense, but it's also structurally important for the argument. Yes. This is what the actual achievement of the Kennedys was, especially John Kennedy, not so much the all the bills he signed, but but this moment of male sexual liberation, which would then dialectically also create the precondition for feminism and questioning of all that came before. And therefore, like Ted Kennedy would end up paying the price for the sexual liberation of his father and brothers. Yes, yes. This is a little glib, but like, is it surprising that Americans are obsessed with the Kennedys when the two things we associate with them more than anything else is sex and death? (laughs) (laughs) Eros and Thanatos. (laughs) Yeah, of course they have a purchase on our imaginations. Yes. Uh, You know, G, you mentioned Philip Larkin, and of course, one of his many great lines, the opening to This Be the Verse, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. They might not mean to, but they do. And so not only is the first section called sex, the very first chapter is called The Father. But in particular, I want to highlight for listeners, because this book is so dense, we can't summarize it. We can't walk you through all of it kind of in detail. But it's important to note, too, that this book begins with following Teddy Kennedy when he ran for president against Jimmy Carter in the Democratic primary in 1980. And essentially, what Wills realizes is that Ted Kennedy had outlived the conditions that made the Kennedy myth possible in a lot of ways. The things we associate with Jack Kennedy and his presidency and kind of that vigorous liberalism, those conditions were gone. And the Kennedy imprisonment is kind of the way the contradictions that were at the base of the Kennedy myth, over time, they became less and less tenable. And so Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, when he runs in 1980, he kind of runs smack into the middle of all the kind of myth-making and contradictions and the bad parts that you could hide for a while during a certain period, both in terms of how the media operated, but also the kind of broader cultural climate. All those things suddenly burst to the fore and people were like, why is this guy so awkward on the campaign trail? He's a Kennedy. Isn't he supposed to be handsome and charismatic and women love him? And he would go to these coffee clutches in New Hampshire and be a stiff, kind of awkward guy. And it was like, what is going on? Well, this book explains what was going on. Yeah, and I, yeah, I want to underscore that the beginning of that book shows Wills as a reporter, you know, at his best. Like you really get the pathos of Ted Kennedy and the, you know this this very pathetic run for office. It has this great phrase: "Kennedy cannot even eat right." One of the American politicians' basic skills, and he really, really brings up all this sort of awkwardness and discomfort. Let's talk about Joe Kennedy a little bit because he's so important to this story. The patriarch, the patriarch, who of course is their reason for being, but also invents the first iteration of the Kennedy myth. You know, creates a world for his children to live in, which is pervaded by mythos, by an illusion. So the book very much follows both biblical and Freudian lines, starting with the patriarch, the founding father, Joseph Kennedy, who who really is this kind of like monstrous figure, you know, self-made man to an extreme, very wealthy, who is rejected 
by the old money Boston Brahmins, and therefore then creates his own social world through Hollywood, through uh, journalism, and dominates the lives of the people around him, including, you know, his mistresses, his children, and uses everyone around him instrumentally as part of this grand project. Not to put a too fine a point on it, but like Freud's sort of myth of the primal father, totem and taboo, is like this notion of like the kind of prehistoric human male patriarch who controls a horde where he has sexual access to all of the women and the sons resent that about him and then they eventually kill him, eat him, and that creates the taboo against incest. But Joe Kennedy is so straightforwardly a primal sex father to the extent that he thinks that he has sexual access to all of the women that his sons date. My jaw dropped. I didn't know any of this until reading the book. It's nuts. Yeah. He is a father who shares sexual partners with his sons. And, and this is one of the things that the Kennedys did. They passed around women as if they're like sort of treasures, right? Like they would share women among the friends and apparently the father. So this, for Wills, like sort of sets the pattern. And it's partially a pattern of gender relations, right? Like, you know, treating women as objects, as conquest, but also uh, competition. You have to win the favor of the father and aggressiveness, you know, the whole macho attitude. So this is the sort of primal psychology, but it's not just a psychology. It's also a social ethos. And part of what's going on here is not just, you know, this is a horrible way to live, but that Joseph Kennedy had created his own world. And I think for someone like Wills, who is, you know, even if politically on the left, he's a traditionalist, there's something very suspicious. And this is part of the danger of America, that in America, people forget the past, they forget inheritance, and they like try to remake themselves. There's also Nixon, right? The crisis of the self-made man. You know, Joseph Kennedy is the self-made man at its kind of ugliest. And again, to circle back to the Catholicism, I, I feel like there's a kind of Augustinian critique here, right? That primordial reality is original sin, that, that we are not individuals, we are part of this community that includes, you know, wrongs that we have to redress. And the self-made man does as he will. The self-made man has no sense of original sin, has no sense of sin at all, really. A clean slate. Just for listeners, I want to give some specifics here. The sort of sense of ownership and like untouchability and just dominance that the father would exhibit. For example, one thing Wills makes a lot of is the father, Joseph Kennedy's affair with Gloria Swanson. And he describes Joseph Kennedy's wife taking this ocean liner to Europe. And he brought Gloria Swanson, who he's having an affair with, everyone knew it. He brought her onto that ship, was fooling around with her there. And Kennedy's wife just, this is where I think the Catholicism comes in. Wives are supposed to be quiet, dutiful, submissive, and almost cloistered. You know, they describe her room as almost a chapel, you know, holy water, rosaries. She had her own little cottage on the beach at Hyannisport where she was almost locked away sometimes, or she would retreat to, as if it was a kind of a convent almost. Oh, and I, sh I should mention that, like, Joseph Kennedy's uh, wife's name is Rose, and, and Wilt actually picks up on that because his grandmother was named Rose, who also lived a kind of cloistered life among these religious relics. So he is very much situating this, like, you know, within a type of Catholic gender relation, which he's critiquing. Yes. And two more points here. One is that this is where I, I kind of want your both of your thoughts on this. It was mentioned earlier, Wills is a kind of psychologist, his ability to size people up and kind of 
understand the deeper internal dynamics that drive them. For example, Joe Kennedy early on made his money in liquor, right? And, you know, some of that is kind of mythology, right? Kind of the Irish liquor runners, you know. But nevertheless, it's true that, as Will says again and again, he never touched his own wares, meaning he didn't drink. Jack Kennedy didn't drink. Bobby rarely drank. They had weak stomachs. The great stories of the father, Joe Kennedy, showing up at lunch with two eggs in his pocket with instructions on how to soft boil them. (laughs) They'd give to the chef. Showing up at a woman's hotel room to sleep with her and calling down for the kitchen staff to soft boil these eggs. Yes. And so there was a kind of physical weakness or liability that they overcompensated for. In Jack Kennedy's case, right, the bad back, the Addison's disease, as as Bobby Kennedy said in, in Will's quotes, probably half of Jack Kennedy's life, he passed in genuine pain. And so the overcompensation with dominating women, the sexual adventurism, the sexual conquest, you get the sense that's compensating for something. Yeah, exactly. Will's phrase for this is like, masculinity for the Kennedys is defined as it was for a lot of men of that day. It's it's booze, brawling, and broads. And if you can't do the booze or the brawling physically, I mean, of course, Jack Kennedy couldn't win a fight. <laughs> you have to overcompensate with the broads, and that's what they do. Yes, and because the Kennedys were rejected by the most elite circles of the wasps, no matter how high they got, you know, rejected as interlopers. Remember, you know, there was kind of the Boston Irish Catholic elite beach town, right, resort town. Joe Kennedy really wanted to be in the wasp aristocracy. And when they were rejected from that polo club, he was incensed. Remember, Joe Kennedy was booed at this 25th Harvard reunion, right? Like he was, he had this chip on his shoulder. And I think that's so important. And I just want to read one little paragraph from this book because it, it really, to me, underscored and summarized like what Joe Kennedy did with that rejection and the kind of world he tried to build for his sons. I'll read from the book here. When Joseph Kennedy's own ambitions for the presidency were frustrated, he turned to his surrogates, his sons. They would become a tiny and enclosed aristocracy of talent with a material base entirely provided by him. They need not scramble or be predators, at least in one sense. (laughs) They would live on the heights to which he lifted them. It was an astonishing act of will to create a kind of space platform out of his own career, one from which the children could fly out to their own achievements and come back for refueling. As this one or that one took on a new challenge, the children were informed by the custodian of their patrimony that, quote, you have just made a political donation to the new flight. And then further down... Joseph Kennedy, Will says, he had no ideology but achievement, and that became theirs. In that passage, you get really the mythical sense of Joseph Kennedy as not just the sort of patriarch, but a particularly American myth of the great Gatsby, right? Of the self-made man who tries to deny history and moves away from like normal society and is the king of his own world. If Gatsby had sons, they would be the Kennedy family. And then very much tied also with the great 20th century story of the old wasp elite and these sort of immigrant interlopers who feel the sting of rejection all the more because they have everything else. They have all the money you could want, right? But still don't have that approval. And that makes them even more desirous of achievement. And I'll make a final point, which is it reminds me a lot of Trump, to be honest, right? I was about to say that, Gene. I've got so much on this. (laughs) Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I think a thing to say about the teetotaling, the self-made man is also a self-controlled man. I think the fact that 
all of the Kennedys save Teddy and his wife, frankly, avoid drink. That is actually very important for Wills. In a way that might seem slightly perverse to the listeners, Wills has more sympathy for Teddy because he's a drinker. Because the thing about alcoholism (laughs) and the melancholy that's associated with alcoholism is that it's a sin of lack of control, right? It's a sin of not being able to handle the pressures that the world impresses upon you. And Kennedy's in the Joe Kennedy model, which John embodied most completely, they sin self-consciously, you know, they sin soberly, (laughs) they sin soberly in full awareness of what they're doing in full awareness. And Wills points this out. He doesn't connect it to Catholicism or Augustinian notions of sin, but I think it's there, which is that Jack's affairs, that the white house became the scene of the primal sex father (laughs) when he was in power, just the way he used women and the way he thought about sexual conquest as a sort of sign of a male virility, it was all done in a calculating way. And that he invited all of his surrogates, the surrogate Kennedys, you know, into this enterprise and required so much coordination and secrecy and complicity. And Teddy is also, you know, getting caught with women who he shouldn't be with and blah, blah, blah. But as Wills points out, like, the sin for Teddy is a sin of like slothfulness and and not being in control because he drinks. And I think even as, and we'll talk about Teddy's specific sins more, and we get to Chappaquiddick, but for a Wills, a sin of lack of control is less damning than a sin of self-controlled, deliberate iniquity, which is the sin of, of his brother, Jack, and his father. This sort of Augustinian impulse in him is to be sympathetic towards someone who can't bear the world and therefore drinks and loses control. Teddy's will was not free. It was bound in some way. That's the Augustinian. And and Will's all but says Teddy was less morally culpable because he was impaired when he made his worst decisions. In a way, his brothers were not. Also, there's a sense of Will's love of paradox, which he gets from Chesterton. You know, part of the perverse paradox of the book is that the Kennedy that people hate the most, Teddy is actually the best Kennedy. Um, and it's, it's, it's based on this idea like, you know, do you want a politician who's good at cover-ups or do you want a politician who's <laughs> bad at cover-ups? And the, the politician who's bad at cover-ups is both less culpable morally, as we suggested, but it's also better for society. The Kennedys, especially John Kennedy, was great at cover-ups. He did all sorts of things that the public should have known about, but they didn't. So it, it's a kind of, a, it's a love of inversion of the truth. And I I have to say it's, it's it's biblical as well. Like that is Jesus, right? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Those who lose their life shall gain it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want to overturn the conventional thinking. The other point I want to make about the sex though is entrapment, right? There's this worry about the Kennedys that, you know, like because he had these affairs, you know, some foreign power could find out. And then Jack Kennedy had an affair with this woman who was like, if not a Nazi spy, had Nazi connections before, you know, World War II. Very early in his life, in the 40s, when he was in Navy intelligence. And one of the interesting things that uh, Wills says is, there was actually no danger of the Nazis being able to use this, but the person who did know how to use it, who had the evidence, was J. Edgar Hoover. Dun, dun, dun. He comes back into our story. (laughs) And and so the paradox is, this sort of sexual indiscretion, it traps you not to the enemy, 
but to the enemy at home or the power at home, J. Edgar Hoover had the goods on the Kennedys. And therefore, later when Bobby Kennedy was attorney general, he was under the thumb of Hoover. He could not challenge Hoover, you know, like yeah. and, and all, all the stuff about wiretapping Martin Luther King Jr., letting Hoover run wild, like the Kennedys were trapped. And he says about Robert Kennedy, his brother's earlier freedoms put Robert Kennedy in a moral prison. So this is, again, it's a paradox, right? The freedom leads to prison. Power leads to prison. Who is at the top shall be at the bottom. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Yes. And I I, I think it's worth really kind of noting this with some specificity because I'm sure our listeners will have varied opinions on some of the theories about Kennedy's assassination and, you know, what all was involved. But one thing this book really helped me understand is, I mean, going back to that liaison with the Nazi in the early 1940s, Will says, and I think this is true, or I would be stunned if it was not true, that from that time on, Jack Kennedy labored under the assumption that J. Edgar Hoover 100% had recordings of the tryst with this Nazi spy and possibly even later affairs, right? So they were convinced there were tapes. And the father, Joe Kennedy, specifically said Hoover will tape you. Like, this is how he operates. The father was freaked out about that. Jack Kennedy knew Hoover had that. And as you're saying, remember, Robert Kennedy was the attorney general appointed by Jack. He was nominally Hoover's boss. And the consequences of this, the kind of soft peddling and treating Hoover with kid gloves, it cannot be overestimated what that wrought. It meant he acquiesced to Hoover's phone tapping of Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King, right? But also, where was the FBI protecting civil rights protesters? Normally, it would have been the FBI, right? The domestic intelligence agency that was involved in kind of monitoring and often protecting civil rights protesters. And instead of that, you know, the FBI was on the sidelines. Robert Kennedy had to work around that. And then it was the FBI who was supposedly responsible for providing kind of intelligence on, say, Southern judges appointed to the federal bench. And Wills specifically points out how poor their knowledge of what these Southern judges actually were. That set back civil rights. And of course, as Southern universities were being integrated, there was a point in time where like the Justice Department wanted to know like the layout of a certain campus, right? And rather than the FBI undertaking that as they normally would, Instead, Bobby had to go around Hoover and got like the defense department, the defense department to do like overhead aerial spying to get the layout of the campus. Like a U2 plane. (laughs) Yes. So in a very concrete way, it affected the Kennedy's relationship to the civil rights movement. And in fact, Will speculates that Bobby Kennedy might have kind of come around on that partly out of guilt from knowing how he had to treat Hoover with kid gloves. And even more then, right, even when Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy then, was running for president later in 1968, he was afraid of kind of saying the wrong thing about LBJ. He couldn't do what Eugene McCarthy did, right, and said, okay, we know the war's bad. Who are the people running the war? Bobby wouldn't go there because, as Wills points out, there were these moments when Bobby was running for president when... Lyndon Johnson would drop little hints in the media, like it was Murder, Inc. in the Caribbean under the Kennedys. Hint, hint, what was going on with Cuba? And in particular, I I just want to say, this is where the father's influence, Hollywood, womanizing, dominance, power. Jack Kennedy was obsessed with like sleeping with 
Judith Campbell, right, who was also um, a mistress of Sam Giancana, a mobster, and the women around Frank Sinatra. This gets back to your point about the conspiracy theories. Right. Because there really was a conspiracy of secrecy around Kennedy and Kennedy's affairs and who he was connected to. Yes. So what, whatever actually happened, the fact that we look at this and sense that we're not being told something, right? There's some kind of cover up. There's some kind of conspiracy. Whatever you ultimately deduce from that, it's definitely clear that after Jack was assassinated in Dallas, Bobby Kennedy, the thing he worried about the most was somehow all the shit getting out. And I think it's Seymour Hersh's book, The Dark Side of Camelot. He describes like Bobby was back in Northern Virginia, in DC, when Kennedy was shot in Dallas. And the first thing he did was like run to the Oval Office and start burning certain files. <laughs> that sounds like a Seymour Hersh anecdote. <laughs> yes, yes. But it, but it's not hard reading Will's book to imagine whether it's literally true or true in essence. It was the immediate concern and the reason that Bobby and others were invested in a kind of quick not particularly thorough investigation. Bobby backed the Warren Commission report without ever reading it. He did not want to piss off LBJ. He did not want to piss off Hoover. He knew the skeletons in the closet. And I just think knowing that about Jack Kennedy, the specific women he had affairs with, the people those women were involved with, and the liabilities that created for him as a candidate and as president, it really explains a hell of a lot of his whole family's behavior in the aftermath of the assassination, and even Bobby's behavior when running for president five years later in 1968. I, I want to mention another anecdote, uh, which is not from Hirsch, but from uh, Evan Thomas's biography of Robert Kennedy, which is that the first thing that Robert Kennedy did after hearing the news of the assassination was to call the head of the CIA and ask him, did you guys do this? Wow. And the, not, not, which is not to say that the CIA did this, right? But that that was a kind of natural thought because of, you know, like all the shenanigans that were happening within the um, Kennedy administration involving, you know, assassinations in Cuba. So that was a, it was a natural thought. And then also, like, as you say, that biography also makes clear that, you know, Robert Kennedy had questions about his brother's assassination, but he also knew that there were limits that he couldn't go to, which is the theme of the Kennedy imprisonment, right? Unchosen limits. Yeah, yeah. You have this power, but it actually also chains, right? It chains you because of everything you have to do to get that power. The Chesterton quote that is one of the epigraphs about how a rich man can't be bribed. No, a rich man has already been bribed. Yes, that's <laughs> so good. I don't even like Chesterton that much, but I read that and I was like, damn, that's really good. I, I do want to say a little bit about Chesterton because he is all over this book. And then Wills' first book is about Chesterton. And Hugh Kenner's first book was actually about Chesterton, Paradox and Chesterton, which might seem anomalous because Kenner went on to write about many other things, as did Wills. And yeah, Chesterton, is, he's an acquired taste, let us say, right? Well, also people enjoy him in a not particularly sophisticated way on the right. Bad people enjoy him for the worst reasons. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, said, exactly. Well, said. well it it's interesting that like Chesterton is now on the right, I think for the worst reasons, because, you know, he did have some of the unsavory traits of the right. But Chesterton politically was not on the right. And this ties in with Gary Wells. Like when William Buckley first met Gary Wells and, you know, was very taken with this young man, he said, you know, like, are you a conservative? And Wells replied, I'm a distributist, which is a reference to Chesterton. Chesterton and his colleague Hilaire Belloc had invented this ideology, which is a kind of Catholic response 
response to capitalism and socialism. Yes, it is a yes, sort of yes. politics of we're neither on the left nor the right. We don't want uh, the big corporate state nor the socialist state. We want a, a small property holding. And one can say this is a quasi fascist ideology, but it's also an anti-capitalist ideology. And Chesterton was always very critical of the rich and the wealthy. And that is a kind of through line that might explain why Gary Wills was never comfortable with National Review conservatism and eventually broke with it. Like he did not accept the idea of the free market. And actually, this is one reason why I always found him an attractive writer and found these other Catholic writers attractive. Conservatives who are distrustful of capitalism is a very interesting combination. And so so, so I think the two things Wills got from Chesterton are, you know, this love of paradox and of overturning conventional notions, but also, you know, this instinctive distrust of the wealthy and the powerful. Yeah. Speaking of, when you read this book and you hear kind of how Joe Kennedy constructed his family and the kind of resentment towards a wasp elite that didn't totally accept them and then having to build some alternative version of American elite acceptability the Trumps do kind of get invoked in your mind. I found myself thinking about the Trumps. And in fact, what I found, especially in the way that Wills describes JFK's character, honestly, I was just reminded of Trump more than anyone else. <laughs> like, like Kennedy was in private in some ways what Trump was in public, right? Like an, an, ag <laughs> an aggressive and exploitative womanizer, right? He had vulgar taste, right? You know, Jacqueline had good taste, so, you know, that's why you have Bach being played in, in the White House. But of course, as we know, Kennedy preferred show tunes, just like Trump, you know? <laughs> uh, Trump's obsessed with Broadway. But also what Wills describes as Jack's obsession with celebrity gossip, Hollywood intrigue of any kind, that he would call women he was sleeping with that he had known that had also slept with Frank Sinatra and say, what's Frank doing? Are you with Frank? What, you know, who is he sleeping with? Like this obsession with like who's sleeping with whom and what kind of connection to himself and his own virility that implied. Also, Wills has the stuff about the way that Jack gives nicknames to his underlings and toadies and rivals. He gives like diminutive nicknames to people who work for him. And it's a way of both sort of bestowing affection, but it's an affection that is also a, a mode of control. If somebody was a Jim, a James who went by Jim, he would call them Jamie to diminish them, to make them a child, you know, his his child. And Trump, of course, does the same thing. And, you know, of course, we know more about Trump doing that to rivals, but he did that to the people who worked for him, too. Those people then ended up being, if they abandoned Trump, then those nicknames are no longer affectionate. And then the other thing, which is perhaps the most important thing, is charisma as a, as a mode of governance, right? This is what Wills identifies as essential to the way the Kennedys operated in power. Charisma is almost the bridge for Wills between the personal and the political, right? The charisma that conquered women was the charisma that they tried to bring to government as outsiders. Charismatics making raids on women, on the government, on Cuba, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be. <laughs> right. Exactly as you're saying, the sexual politics is totally linked to this notion of charisma because Kennedy and sex and the way that he embodied sex pervades the whole enterprise of the Kennedy project because it's all about license is about taking and wielding power for its own sake and bending the rules and mores for an elect elite. If you're part of this clerisy, then you're allowed to ignore 
morality and it's about conquest. And really, I mean, the word is licentiousness. You know, that's the Kennedy ruling project in a nutshell. And, and that's not coterminous with this thing about charisma, but it's related because Wills uses the sort of vocabulary of charisma from Weber, but interpreted by one of Weber's inheritors, Reinhard Bendix, in this chapter on charisma. I think that's one of the best chapters in the book where he describes the sort of five features of charismatic leadership and how Kennedy, how they were going to wield the power of the presidency. And it, frankly, I mean, it's, it's interesting in its own right, but it also just reminded me so much of the Trump presidency. <laughs> like, okay, I'll, I'll go through the five features quickly. You know, Wills does show that the Kennedy administration aspired at least to embody each one of these features. So Number one, charismatic leadership is the product of crisis and enthusiasm. It has an emergency character. Two, the charismatic leader is always a radical who challenges established practice by going to the root of the matter. He dominates men by virtue of qualities inaccessible to others and incompatible with the rules of thought and action that govern everyday life. Three, charismatic leadership works through a loose organizational structure. For though the organizational structure of charismatic leadership is loose, it calls upon, quote, disciples chosen for their qualifications who constitute a charismatic aristocracy within the wider group of followers. Five, in economic matters, it's harder to exert charismatic leadership, but it prefers, quote, risky financial transactions. <laughs> Such economic activities are worlds apart from the methodical management in which success depends upon professional competence and an everyday steadiness in the conduct of affairs that is incompatible with the indispensability of any individual and the sporadic character of very risky transactions. I mean, this describes the Trump White House to a T. It's incredible. And I mean, and there's, there's a lot going on here, of course, as Wills notes, a lot of what motivated the kind of idea of the best and the brightest, the new frontier, was this rejection of their perception of what Eisenhower represented. The model of the president as like, corporate leadership consensus builder consensus builder. who gets a committee of people around him and you know they, they come to a kind of decision I, I think the one aspect I'd, I'd add though is like it's also coming out of the love of aristocratic culture yes anglophilia was so important for jfk yeah because not only are the kennedys bad catholics but they're also bad irish people the worst irish people are anglophiles right nora efron in her review of overdrive uh said about buckley give an irishman a horse and he'll vote Tory." So the, the, the Kennedys and the Buckleys do have this thing in common that they are like Irishmen who have gotten a horse and therefore want to be Tories. One thing that Wills makes very clear is both the Joseph uh, Kennedy and the, all the other sons uh, were all Anglophiles. They wanted to become English aristocrats. They you know read John Buchan novels about dashing aristocratic spies. And what I think is a real revelation of the book, and it really struck me so hard, is that their isolationism was not the American isolationism of America has to keep apart from Europe, they were actually very close to the Cliveden set, the English isolationist, who were, I cannot emphasize this enough, these were fascist sympathizers who wanted to preserve the British Empire by allowing Hitler to be overlord of Europe, and who then, once their isolationism led England into disaster, created this whole myth that was actually the fault of the common people. They didn't want to build arms enough. That's why we had to have appeasement. And John Kennedy's book, While England Slept, is a recapitulation of this myth of English aristocrats who want to blame democracy for the problem of appeasement when appeasement was their actual own 
policy. Yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, we should point out here that Joe Kennedy was the ambassador to the UK from 1938 to 1940. And actually, this ties in with Trump again, because the politics of Joseph Kennedy was kind of like America first with Anglophilia characteristics, which, you know, you kind of get with Trump, both the America first, but also, you know, you name your son Baron, like, you know, (laughs) you're trying to be like these kind of like pretend aristocrats. Although, Jeet, I will point out one of the really fucked up things about Baron being named what he is. Recall that's also the last name of the fake Trump publicist he made up, John Barron. John Barron, exactly. And just to that point, because the father was the ambassador to the United Kingdom, remember, he wanted to be Secretary of the Treasury. FDR said, hell no, gave him this consolation prize. A bunch of kind of like weird statistics and materials and whatnot that Joe Kennedy had in his possession as someone you know, at the court of St. James, all that weird stuff found its way in a very haphazard manner into Kennedy's book, Why England Slept. And there's the great line, just to put a point on this, in that book, something like, democracies are always two years behind dictatorships. Right. It's only the charismatic leader that can make the tough choices and have the far reaching vision that democracies lacked. So that book and the experience of England and the UK and the lead up to World War Two, it's really hard, I think, to overstate kind of the way that eventually bled into the kind of valorization of charismatic leadership and the necessity of that leadership. And I just want to point out as a little side note, one of the things I I thought a lot about reading this is, if you recall, a kind of advisor to Kennedy who wrote him these memos after he'd won the presidency and was, you know, the transition period before he was inaugurated was none other than Dick Neustadt, Richard Neustadt, the famous Harvard political scientist who wrote the famous book, Presidential Power, which I can say as of 2007, when I took my comprehensive exams in American politics, especially the presidency, that book, four or five decades later, is still on every comp list in American politics, basically. And what was his thesis? It was that presidential power is the power to persuade. And so the entire kind of theorization of the post-FDR presidency was about kind of charisma, persuasion, leadership. And I just think that's so interesting because one of the very subtle arguments of Wills's book is that basically after FDR and then Eisenhower, especially, right, so the, the creation of the modern state, the modern presidency, the modern bureaucracy, all these agencies, FDR gets credit for that. Eisenhower consolidates it. Well, what's a charismatic leader to do after that? Well, in some ways, you have to be the president against the government and existing bureaucracy. Yes, that's that's Wills's point. And and once I read that, I was just like, oh my goodness, that explains so much of the past few decades of American political history. That to be a great president, you actually have to array yourself against the kind of institutions, bureaucracies, and developments. The deep state. The deep state. Yes, yes. I mean, I think the book itself contains an amazing history of 20th century American politics. And what happens is that Cold War liberalism, the liberalism, not just of the Kennedys, but of these Harvard experts like Neustad, kind of rejects a democratic inheritance of the New Deal and has a much more elitist liberalism, a liberalism that believes that because of the Cold War, the final twilight struggle with this enemy, dictatorships are two steps ahead of us. We have to have the charismatic leader. And that is the fundamental ideology that Kennedy has from when England slept to, you know, the sort of 
charismatic presidency, and it's a very dangerous anti-democratic thing, which has lasting power, which influences presidents after him. And so in some ways, I mean, the great revelation of the book is like what introduces the anti-democratic strain of modern American politics. It's liberalism. It's Cold War liberalism. Yes, yes. Shout out to Sam Moyne. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think that's so interesting is like that JFK has these sort of historians of the FDR presidency who are writing memos for him about how he should govern. And, you know, what they're saying is that like FDR encountered a crisis and then used his extraordinary leadership to reshape American politics. But by the time JFK is in the position to do the same thing, the shape of American politics is the bureaucracy that was created by the New Deal. And so in order to be a kind of disruptive, charismatic leader, the things that are fettering you are exactly the inheritance of what FDR built by the crisis that was handed to him. I wanted to say a point about those historians, because it is the case that Kennedy was surrounded by, you know, historians of the New Deal, like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and uh, Burns. One thing is that these are very elite historians. They're focused on high politics at the presidential level. And I think that, you know, like other historians, and especially subsequent historians coming out of the new left, paint a very different picture of the 1930s, emphasizing the role of mass movements in mobilizing and introducing change and forcing a crisis. And then FDR's, I think his real political genius was that he was willing to work with these mass movements and harness them. Whereas like the Kennedys, I mean, one thing is if you have that elitist perspective, mass movements, you spy on them, right? You distrust them. They're to be handled, right? Maybe even wiretap them. Encourage them to commit suicide. Their management problem. One problem with the Kennedy liberalism is it could not handle like how these mass movements were playing out and didn't understand on a conceptual level what the role of a president should be towards mass movements. Yes, yes, yes. This is very relevant now because we see with Joe Biden, I think he has some of that Kennedy myopia in terms of, you know, the mass movements that we're seeing now. They're pesky kind of problems for him as opposed to make me do it kind of style FDR. But this brings me to the new frontier. I want to talk about this for a second, because you're talking about these kind of Harvard-educated people who come to Washington to staff the JFK presidency, or even just to be kind of in these like <laughs> vague positions of authority within his inner circle. I do think this is really important, and it, it relates back to the Anglophilia, because JFK's Washington, right, is the notion of a sort of libertine aristocracy, like they, these sort of bored professors and writers who are sort of tired of of the 50s and maybe tired of their families and their wives, you know? I mean, this is something Wills points out, that they, they go to Washington to be invited into this grand, sexy intellectual adventure. And what, what JFK gives them is, is putting intellectual and cultural elite back in the driver's seat of history, like privileging urbanity and flash over what was perceived as the Eisenhower era of small town kind of humility, consensus and chastity, you know, <laughs> and, and Wills points out that this is related to both the foreign and domestic policy of the Kennedy administration. It's guerrilla warfare at home and abroad, yes. right? Counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency against the bureaucracy at home and counterinsurgency against communists and insufficiently anti-communist governments abroad. And it's, of course, like, you know, I don't know if we've even invoked James Bond, but it's the James Bond archetype, right? It's, it's the notion of the kind of sexually libertine 
charismatic operator who, you know, has a license to kill, right? And I, I think this is the way that Wills does such a good job of pulling all the threads of the Kennedy mythos, the sort of origin story of the family into the way that he governs. It's like all of these like lame, bored intellectuals come to Washington and, you know, they're not necessarily like screwing starlets in the White House, but they know that he is, you know, and that gives them like this vicarious thrill. Yes, vicarious thrill. It gives them this vicarious thrill and covering it up is not like a, a burden. It's like that makes them feel like more a part of the whole enterprise. I think Wills just does such a good job of conjuring the era of the best and the brightest as also this sexy aristocratic adventure, which these men felt that they had been deprived of. And this kind of, as, as Matt pointed out, this like pre-feminist sexual liberation moment. I think that's just so, that's so all in the mix. One point I want to make is that that counterinsurgency guerrilla warfare model remains very influential. It is the origins of sort of special ops culture, right? Obama foreign policy. Exactly, exactly. But uh, also that you, you work around institutions, right? And the family is also an institution, right? In some ways, the affairs are a counterinsurgency <laughs> of, of the sexual life. Well said, well said. <laughs> SEAL team sex. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. But despite stuff, again, really does go back to the 30s because before Ian Fleming and James Bond, there was John Buchan, a Scottish-English novelist, one of the pioneers of the spy novel, had these novels of dashing aristocratic spies, one of Kennedy's favorite writers, very much tied to that aristocratic milieu of the Cliveden set. So it all, again, ties together. And if one speaks of the sort of political legacy of that Kennedy era, I think it's important to realize it's a bipartisan legacy. You know, it's not just Clinton and Obama, but in some ways, Cold War liberalism splinters in the 60s and goes in two different directions. There's, you know, the legacy of the civil rights movement and of the reform era, which goes into the Democratic Party. But, you know, like a lot of the Cold War liberals become neoconservatives. And they will always say, like, I am a Harry Truman, GFK liberal. And they're right. You know, think of something like Norman Potteritz, right? That world of like, you know, the intellectual who makes it, who is successful, who has the girlfriends uh, while also being married. It is that Kennedy-era ideal. And of course, he becomes a neoconservative and then later a Trump supporter. But the continuity there is is very strong. We shouldn't just say these people betrayed their ideals. No, I mean, I think they have a genuine claim that they are actually JFK liberals. And that says more about JFK's liberalism than anything else. Yes, and when, and when people, as constantly happens, this kind of incredulity about all the people surrounding Trump who enable his worst instincts and all, all of the sort of self-seeking power fantasy and license that he embodies like well why would people just put up with this no it feels good it feels good to be a part of that you get a vicarious thrill right from the fact that he can do anything he wants and never face any consequences for it i think that's really 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 in the mix here one thing i thought about while i was talking to matt last night was about how there's a way in which sort of the new frontier this moment over all these kind of seers and chroniclers of post-war liberalism, the historians like get into power. They imagine that through Kennedy, they're going to instantiate their vision of the good that they've just been talking about to their Harvard undergraduates. It is kind of like what happens when Reagan 
comes to power and gets to instantiate the National Review vision of the good in, in a weird way. And it's, of course, it's interrupted by the assassination, but it's like, all right, here we go. Like, we've just been thinking and talking about this, but let's do it. Well, I, I want to actually say there's something very relevant, and it goes back to Hugh Kenner, which is that in uh, 1964, right before the election, National Reviews does an issue of, like, what happens when we take power. And Kenner, who usually doesn't write about politics, has this thing, and he talks about how the New Deal, but especially the Kennedy, created this network of power that combines intellectuals at the universities with Washington. And that means that if there's a liberal president, Arthur Schlesinger is the important historian, and other figures are important. And he says, like, what happens if Goldwater is in power. Like Leo Strauss will be the important philosopher. Frederick Hayek <laughs> will be the important economist. James Burnham will be the important strategist. So that it will not just change political life, it will change intellectual life. And I think history bears that out, right? Like under Reagan, all these, you know, fringe figures of the National Review suddenly become, well, we actually have to read these guys, you know, they're actually, and, you know, it leads to podcasts, right? Like, like we actually have to pay attention <laughs> to these guys because they actually are whispering into it and they're part of this network that combines academia think tanks and washington yes and that that that's sort of an invention of the kennedy era so let's move towards the end here because what we're talking about is sort of the licentiousness of the jfk presidency but what becomes wills's abiding theme is the imprisonment of the sort of era of Kennedy's after, and Teddy in particular, I wanted to sort of admit to, this is like sort of a way in which I'm like such a millennial, is that reading the sort of detailed account of Chappaquiddick that appears in this book was so appalling to me because I had the vaguest sense of what that was. And I bet a lot of our listeners probably also only have the vaguest sense of what that was. But for Wills, this is kind of the keystone to understanding, you know, this, this sort of notion of how power creates a prison, but also that it, that it has so much collateral damage. The Chappaquiddick episode sort of embodies all of those things. And I, I just was like, you know, Teddy Kennedy embodies some kind of lost era of sort of liberal virility right up until he dies, right? But my God, he killed this woman. I yeah. mean, he let her die. Yes. You know, Okay, for listeners, Chappaquiddick, very briefly, there's a party. Teddy leaves. He's almost certainly drunk. He drives this car with this woman who was a, a campaign staffer, a friend of the family, in the car with him. That was the party. So this is in the aftermath of Bobby's presidential campaign. There's this party of the, the young women who were in the, quote, boiler room for RFK's presidential campaign. It's basically a funeral. So, yeah, so he leaves the party with this woman. He drives off this bridge. The car crashes into the water. He escapes. She doesn't. He says that he tried to swim to get her out multiple times, and he doesn't. And then he walks back to the party, doesn't tell anybody except for his two top most toadiest goons about what's happened. And then they spend the whole night just trying to game out what they should do. They don't tell the police. They don't tell anybody. And it's hard to figure out for sure, but like, if they call the police right away... She might have been saved. Like a pocket of oxygen in the car, right? Quick action might have saved this this girl. Yes, but immediately the idea was, I'm concerned about my political future, and I am accustomed, this is Wills's point, is that I am accustomed to being in situations where I have these loyal 
Kennedy surrogates who will get me out of any kind of bad situation. And so the first thought is not for this woman who he was friends with, potentially cared about a lot. It was, oh God, this is bad for me, but there's a solution. And what ultimately happens is that he does get away with it, (laughs) completely gets away with it. Like his license is suspended for a year. Honestly, when I read the detailed account of it, I was like, this is evil. I think Wills does a good job of showing this, that it's a structural evil, but it's evil, but it's a structural evil in the sense that the whole Kennedy project creates the possibility for this to happen. It creates the situation in which it happens, but also it creates the political and legal environment in which he gets away with it. I mean, of course, this is 69. If it had happened maybe five years later, because when he gives his statement about it to television reporters, he relates it to this sort of death-haunted, doomed story of his family. And maybe people would have been much less sympathetic later on. And they were in 1980 when he ran for president. But I said this to Matt yesterday, but like conservatives talk about the Clinton crime family and the Biden crime family. (laughs) But the Kennedy crime family is a real thing. These are killers. Sam, I just want to say, you know, as a young right winger, an ex-conservative, Chappaquiddick, like this was always the go-to like bitchy line about Ted that I, I distinctly remember. I don't mean to be crass or inappropriate, but I think it is a kind of great right wing bumper sticker. My guns have killed fewer people than Ted Kennedy's car. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's one of these situations where it's like it was a, it was a hobby horse for Buckley. Right. Like always sort of saying like, hey, wait, remember these people killed a woman and covered it up. And his motives were bad, but it was so appalling. He was right. And I, I think that gets masked a little bit, like or what liberals tell themselves, that the people who still unbelievably, by my mind, buy into the Kennedy miss, the kind of line is something like, Teddy learned his lesson and like as penance, his last few decades in the Senate, he did the work, he read the reports, and that's not wrong. Like descriptively, Ted Kennedy was an excellent senator, an excellent legislator, one of the last great legislators we probably had, but he should not have been in the Senate. Like he should have been blacklisted from American public life. Well, he should have gone to prison. He should have gone to prison, first of all. He killed that girl, Mary Jo Kopechnik, by the way. We should mention her name. And you can see, even at Champaquiddick, it was further enough along, even then, the kind of conditions that we were describing, that window between the sexual revolution and 70s feminism, that moment was starting to fray. And so you see, like, it was really touch and go, right? It was an all-out PR strategy, including, like... Ted Kennedy and his wife showing up to the fucking funeral, but with Ted wearing that neck brace to like emphasize his own woundedness and kind of like these are two people who just were in a tough spot. The Kennedy PR machine like ramped up into overdrive, but it was far enough along his survival of that quote unquote scandal. I think it was a close run thing. I think the Kennedy sex myth actually plays in this in a quite perverse and strange way in the sense that it became a fixation of everybody to prove that they were having an affair. But as Wills points out, that's not necessarily true. And probably wasn't even. And the sort of sordidness of that really distracted from the actual crime and the kind of vestigial boys will be boys thing about the Kennedys in this situation becomes an alibi as opposed to 
making it worse? Because how have the Kennedys been treating women before as expendable? You know, this is, is just another notch on the wood, like in a really distinctly American and disgusting way. If he's sleeping with her, then it's less bad that she was killed. Yeah, no, the cover-up then becomes he's trying to cover up the affair. It's really terrible. I, I want to say something. I mean, in terms of the structure of power, I think one thing that comes out in the chapter is the courtiers, like all the sort of, you know, surrogate Kennedys who, like, carry out the dirty deed. And I want to say that, like, that has not gone away in the sense of, you know, with Robert Kennedy, my colleague at The Nation, Joan Walsh, did this article about her complicity in this. You know, Robert Kennedy had published this piece in Salon, his first sort of anti vax This is RFK Jr. Yeah, RFK Jr., yeah. And it's in 2005. Joan was an editor there. Her account makes it clear they gave a lot of license to RFK Jr., in that article, they didn't do the due diligence. And then when critiques came out, they defended the article far too long. And, you know, she says it's because he was a Kennedy, right? Like she had inherited from her father, like this reverence for the Kennedy family, you know, and allow them to get away with more than they should. So that part of history has not ended, right? That, that special aura that the Kennedy are given and the, the dire consequences. In this case, like for Salon to oppose that in 2005, that did a huge amount to sort of mainstream anti-vaxxing sentiment. What's interesting to me is that when Wills is writing this book, it comes out, what, 82? He's sort of suggesting that it's all over, that like Teddy can't win because... He's haunted by his brothers. He's compared to them. He has to invoke them because that's the authorizing myth of the reason that people should care about him and that people should trust him. But he's always, by invoking them, compared unfavorably to their charisma and the myth of his dead brothers. And that, like, as Wills writes about Chappaquiddick, he says, ironically, Kennedy's very success in evading the full scrutiny and pressure of the law disqualifies him for the presidency. A man for whom other men of power and fame are already willing to stretch and bend the law, to whom they will lend the support of their reputations, should not be further raised above the law by holding the nation's highest office. He's suggesting that that's how the public felt when Chappaquiddick came up again in 1980. But where are we now? I mean, the Kennedy myth is not over. Like you said, Joan published that piece. You know, RFK is polling <laughs> quite high, right, in, in, in swing states. Which is the QAnon stuff. I mean, I think it's totally in keeping with the, the, the sordid legacy of, of this family and the, the horrible myths that they've created and the sort of, you know, the, the degradation of democracy that comes from this, these sort of lies and myths that QAnon emerges and one of the things that they come up with is that this guy who looks nothing like JFK Jr. is actually, you know, JFK Jr. So the Kennedy mythos lives on in QAnon as well. Like that is part of the legacy, as well as, you know, like other legacies of sort of conspiratorial culture, which again, like, yeah, not, it's not just a product of the aftermath of the assassination, but we're already there in how the Kennedys conceptualized power and how they talked about power and how they behaved and the actual conspiracies that they were engaged in. So so, so there's a way in which, you know, like, unfortunately, the, the Kennedy imprisonment is all too relevant. We are still imprisoned in Kennedyism. <laughs> Yes. Does the story that Wills is telling here, which, you know, of course, for Wills, it's a Shakespearean tragedy of which not just the hubristic principles are the victims, all of us are the victims of it. But does that actually still have purchase for 
people who see the Kennedy name on a poll or or the fact that this guy's running for president outside of the two parties against the institutions. One more counterinsurgency. <laughs> yeah, one more counterinsurgency. Is there some kind of amnesia about even the lessons that sort of will suggest that we should learn about the Kennedys in the 1980s? Is that gone and now we're kind of back to the Kennedy myth, at least for the people who are excited about the RFK Jr. presidential run? Like, I haven't thought that much about him. I wonder if either of you have. Well, you know, there's not a lot of Kennedys who wield power in the same way. You get the sense something's declining. Like, remember when Joe Kennedy, the young one, the redhead with the glossy lips who gave the State of the Union rebuttal a few years ago and everyone kind of mocked him, like, why are her lips so shiny? Well, they liked him then, but then he ran against Ed Markey. Right. The thing is, he did lose to Ed Markey. But some of the shocking polling numbers, there's been a few polls recently that showed like Trump in the 30s, Biden in the 30s, and RFK Jr. in the 20s. I suspect it's kind of a mix of the kind of most vague vestiges of the Kennedy myth, plus fame, plus money, which is to say the ability to gain immediate attention for yourself if you run for office, which RFK Jr. you know, has done. There's still enough there. And I think, you know, sometimes with the pundits of a certain age, let's say. I mean, I can say when I worked at Commonweal, I remember one day at lunch, I was mouthing off about how much I didn't like the Kennedys, <laughs> basically, and especially Teddy's, you know, sins, which we were just describing. And my boss, Paul Bauman, a great, great editor, I'm not speaking ill of him, but he was just so offended at my kind of posture towards the Kennedys. He was a, you know, a Commonwealth Catholic of a certain era. And I feel like it's almost a weird pincer movement where the old still have some connection to the Kennedy myth and the young, they're drawn in by fame, money, you know, the ability to get attention on social media, the name, and it's kind of a weird dynamic. Well, I mean, the way I would think about it is, I mean, the, the family itself and the name is has become tarnished and is not what it once was, but it still has something. But the broader Kennedyism, you know, the broader thing that the family introduced into politics, which is the idea of celebrity as a third force. Celebrity is something that's apart from either party loyalty or institutional loyalty, you know, being a general like Eisenhower. That is still there. And there's a way in which celebrities are seen as somehow like more trustworthy or honest because they're not beholden to the rich, right? And that, that was Trump's whole claim. And I, I think Sam's earlier points about all the ways in which Trump is an heir to the Kennedys, I think that's very well taken. Again, in terms of like how we conceptualize the importance of all this, the one big thing is that, you know, the things of Trumpism, there's a lot of liberals that want to see it as an alien thing. Like, oh, this is something that, you know, Putin dreamed up and imposed on America. And I'm sorry, but like, like Trump owes a lot more to JFK than he does to Putin. And Trump is one of the heirs of the Kennedys, not the only heir. I mean, there's ways in which Obama and Clinton are also heirs. And the death-haunted Bidens. Yeah, and too. the death-haunted Bidens. So I think the Kennedy legacy, for better or worse, is this still with us. I would not say that uh, we, you know, we have found the keys out of this prison. Yeah. I think in particular, the dynamic in an age of disillusionment, gridlock, sclerosis, a sense of a real gap between what our leaders do and where public sentiment is at. I mean, look at Israel the, as a prime example. The idea of a rich, charismatic outsider who can fix things 
is still with us, which is to say we're still looking for Superman at the supermarket, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, well said, well said. Maybe as a final, final thought, I think to give Wills his due, where he ends up in this book is by comparing the Kennedys to King, really, to Dr. King, and sort of suggesting that, well, as he writes, quote, King rallied the strength of broken men, transmuting an imposed squalor into the beauty of chosen suffering. No one did it for his followers. They did it for themselves. Yet in helping them, he exercised real power, achieved changes that dwarfed the moonshot as an American achievement. The Kennedy era was really the age of Dr. King. I think that's part of the greatness of this book, which is that it's not just a debunking book. Like, I think there have been many books that said, well, the Kennedys aren't quite, you know, as great as we make it all out to be. But I, I think what makes it a great book is that it looks at the sources of Kennedy power, but then also suggests an alternative. What is the alternative to these would-be aristocrats that want to be charismatic leaders? The alternative is sort of mass movements. And what King and the movement around him represented, right? And it goes back to the paradox of power. The Kennedys had power, but they became imprisoned. Whereas the Black Civil Rights Movement, they were the people without power, but through their organizing and through their strength and through their moral witness, they acquired a power to change things. And there's a way in which, you know, paradox is not just the gift of Chesterton. It's also, you know, as a Christian, Wills would recognize it, it is from the Bible. The stone the builder has rejected has become the foundation stone. I think that sort of vision, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, is the sort of moral vision that undergirds this book and really gives it its own mythic power. Yes. Exactly. I think that should be the final word. <laughs> okay. I think so, The too. last word, we might say. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jeet. You've been so generous with your time. We're very grateful that you made the time for us. And listeners, we had so much fun doing this. We've been geeking out for a while about this, sending emails and notes to each other. Yeah. And just thank you so much, Jeet. Thank you so much, Sam. And thank you so much, listeners. This was every bit as fun as I thought it would be. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.